Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. All right, so it is summertime and it is hot. And Lauren, she almost melted this <laughs> week because her AC went out on Tuesday. It's been like 95, but with the humidity, it feels like it's 105. <laughs> AC, it makes the difference between life and death these days. Yeah, it was... It was bad. I mean, it was it was really hot. <laughs> I just like was like just laying in my bed, just like oh. But I, I am blessed. I have a ceiling fan, and they tell you when you buy a house, like things are going to go wrong, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they do, and then they do. <laughs> and it's just like you know, you have to get to work early and call the guy, and then he got there an hour and a half early, so I had to rush home from work. And look, all things considered, my water heater broke a couple months ago. And that was, like, intense. Like, water was just burning everywhere, and I was trying to find every towel in the house. And I will say, compared to that, my air conditioner was a brace. I just... This is adulthood right here. seriously. (laughs) Water heaters, AC units breaking, (laughs) fixing things. (laughs) Well, we hope wherever you are, you are surviving the heat, especially if you're on uh, the West Coast. I know we've been having crazy hot, record-breaking temperatures over there, I was in uh, Utah earlier in the summer, and I just have never felt heat like that. So stay strong out there. Stay in AC. All right. Well, we have, uh, you know, well, that's maybe a cheesy cheesy joke to say. It's, we have a steamy show today. Wow, I was going to say we have a really cool show today. <laughs> Aw, <like> AC. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lauren, what do we have queued up? Up on today's Problematic Women, we share some disappointing news for religious freedom. Washington State Florist Baronelle Stutzman has been in a legal battle since 2013. One of her longtime clients asked her to design flower arrangements for his same-sex wedding. She told him that because of her religious beliefs, she could not design flowers for his wedding, but she referred him to three other great florists. A couple weeks later, she learned she was being sued. After eight years in and out of courtrooms, the Supreme Court has just declined to hear the case, leaving Baronell on the losing side. Baronell and Alliance Defending Freedom attorney Kristen Wagner joins the show to explain what is next for the case and for Baronell herself. Also on today's show, we talk with Heritage Foundation education expert Lindsay Burke about the National Education Association's commitment to promote critical race theory in schools across America. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. I am so honored to welcome to the show Washington State Florist Shop owner Baronel Stutzman and General Counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, Kristen Wagner. Baronel and Kristen, thank you all so much for being here today. Our privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Baronel, you have been in the middle of a major religious freedom lawsuit ever since 2013. We followed your case very closely here at the Daily Signal. It has been a long journey. So let's unpack 
some of that journey uh, and really go back to the beginning and, and how we have now arrived uh, with the Supreme Court being involved. So you run your own florist shop in Washington State. And back in 2013, one of your longtime customers asked you to design flowers for his same-sex wedding. Tell us about that conversation and what happened afterwards. Well, Rob had been to the store a couple of times before, and I wasn't there and told the girls that he was getting married and wanted to talk to me. And uh, so I knew I was coming in, so I went home and talked to Daryl and asked him what we were going to do. And it was my job to tell Rob the best way I could, you know, that I could not do his wedding because my faith teaches me that marriage is between a man and a woman. And he said he understood, and we talked about his mom walking down the aisle, and we talked about why he and Kurt decided to get married, and he... Uh, asked if I would recommend another florist, which I did, which he got his flowers from. Matter of fact, they had enough offers for 20 free weddings. So it wasn't like they couldn't get their flowers somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, we, we talked and uh, we hugged each other and Rob left. So I had no idea whatsoever there was anything wrong. And then his friend Kurt put something on social media that simply said, Arnell has every right to believe the way she did, does that it hurt our feelings, and from there it went viral. And from there, the Attorney General, without any complaint from Robin Kurt, sued me personally and corporately, and the ACLU got a hold of Robin Kurt and also sued me personally and corporately. Wow. So obviously, um, you know, not not what you were expecting when you ended that conversation with Rob that ended very cordially and with a hug in the store um, and then to find out that you're being sued on multiple fronts. Uh, Kristen, Alliance Defending Freedom is a Christian legal organization that has represented Baronell in this case now for eight years all the way through. The Washington State Attorney General filed that lawsuit against Baronell, claiming uh, that she was required to create flower arrangements for same-sex weddings. Um, Then you all stepped in to help her and to represent Baronell in this case. What was the Washington or what is the Washington State law that the Attorney General said that Baronell was in violation of? The Washington State Attorney General took unprecedented action against Baronelle, not just in suing her personally, but in two other ways. There were two laws they claimed she violated. The first was Washington's Law Against Discrimination, which is the state non-discrimination law. And what was unusual about that and unprecedented was that normally a state non-discrimination law, there's an agency that investigates claims like that and the agency determines whether and how to move forward. It's often called a human rights commission. In Washington, though, the attorney general was so intent on pursuing Baronell that it bypassed the human rights commission and took on the lawsuit itself without even going through that process. The second claim that they made, which was also unprecedented, it's the only time that we have seen this this law be used in this way, is they sued under the state's Consumer Protection Act. And most, if if not all states, I I don't know the exact stats, but many states have Consumer Protection Acts, and they sued Baronell under that act as well. Mm. So shortly after the Attorney General filed those lawsuits, then the ACLU came along and they sued Baronell. Uh, What what are the differences between the ACLU's lawsuit against Baronell uh, and the Attorney General's? Nothing. Uh, There's absolutely no difference. There's no difference in the facts. There's no difference in the arguments. 
which I think underscores the vindictiveness of these lawsuits. This is about sending a message to not only people in Washington state, but to scare those on a national level and to really punish and ruin someone who doesn't agree with the attorney general's ideology. So, Kristen, Alliance Defending Freedom asked the Supreme Court to hear arguments for Baronell's case, for the case Arlene's Flowers versus Washington, but the Supreme Court has said no. So uh, now the case reverts back to the Washington State Supreme Court decision, which was a ruling against Baronell. So why would the Supreme Court not hear this case when they've heard other similar cases such as Jack Phillips' case? It's it's so hard to speculate, uh, and I just don't even, I can't even speculate on why the court would make the decision that it did. Um, What we do know is that the first time the case went up, the Supreme Court wiped out that bad decision by the Washington Supreme Court and told them to reconsider her case. The Washington Supreme Court defiantly cut and pasted its original decision into a second decision, and that's the one that went before the U.S. Supreme Court this time. And oddly, the Supreme Court held Baronell's request for almost two years and did nothing with it. That's very unusual and signals that the court is is carefully considering it or wanting to do something. So I don't know what changed over the course of this, but what I do know is that a grave injustice was done um, to Baronell, but that the legal questions that her case presents are still open questions. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision not to hear a case is not binding precedent on anyone. It it doesn't change the law in any way. And there are other cases like Baronell's that will be coming up to the high court. So, Baronell, what were you feeling when you heard that the Supreme Court would not hear your case? When that news came out last week, what were some of the thoughts running through your head? Oh, there were so many. I was very sad. I was devastated. I was I just could not believe that our constitutional freedoms, the Supreme Court wouldn't even hear them. And this is such a loss, not just to me, but to everybody. When you can't practice your faith, when you can't live by your convictions, I mean, it it gives Washington State and the ACLU the pathway to absolutely destroy me and to threaten anybody else that would happen to think the same way. Mm. I mean, you've been in and out of the courtroom now for eight years. What has this lawsuit against you, lawsuits against you, cost you and your family? It it has cost us so much, mentally, physically, spiritually. I meant the the cost, everything we've worked for, all these years, the flower shop that I own, our, our home, our retirement, our life savings, everything is in jeopardy because of the ACLU attorney fees are going to be so large. You know, we've we've saved all this for our kids and our grandkids. We've worked hard. You know, I'm 77 years old. I'm a little late to start over. So yeah. it's, it's very devastating. Mm. I know uh, you shared your story in an ADF video in 2018, uh, and, you, and you said that, you know, if, if the court didn't rule in your favor, that you would likely lose everything because, as you mentioned, you know, those, those lawyer fees are expensive, the financial penalties from Washington State – how how is is that turning out now? Do you know some of the realities yet of those financial costs? We don't know how it's going to turn out. 
Uh, we just have to wait and see. And, uh, you know, we just have to wait and see. We don't know what the future is going to bring. Why is this issue so important to you? I mean, I, I think so many Americans, including myself, so so feel for you, so have empathy. Um, but why why put a stake in the ground here and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to compromise on this area of my faith? Well, I think we all have lines in our lives that we have to draw. And that was my life. My line, the Bible is very uh, explicit about weddings and, and marriage and between a man and a woman. And uh, I believe that. My faith teaches me that. And so that was the line I had to draw, even though it was very difficult for me. I, uh, I love Rob. I miss Rob. I would wait on him for another 10 years. That's just one event that represents Christ and his church. And that's just something I could not do. Yeah. What would you say to someone in the LGBTQ community who's uh, maybe, you know, offended by your position on this issue? Well, I was nothing to ever be offended over. I waited on Rob for 10 years. I've had employees that identify as gay and lesbian. It was never an issue of whether they were gay or straight or anything else. It was an issue of a marriage just between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. It's one event, one event in 10 years, and I'm losing everything. Wow. And your flower shop, is it still open? The flower shop's still open. We cannot do weddings anymore. So everything that I've worked for, my creativity, being able to do weddings, being able to do the thing I love, is now being taken away. Mm. And are you thinking about, okay, you know, now it might be time to, to move states? Or uh, what, what are you kind of thinking through as far as next steps now? I'm I'm just waiting to see how everything turns out. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just it's a it's a question mark. So we'll be patient and wait. Mm. Well, Kristen, you know it, this case I think is um, it's it's eye opening for for many people. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of Jack Phillips in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case in 2018 saying that he had the right to follow his religious convictions and to not be forced to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, why is there still a question on this issue when we saw that Supreme Court ruling in the case of Jack Phillips? That seemed pretty cut and dry. So uh, why is this still such an issue in question and, and even still an issue that um, for someone like Baronelle, she's finding herself on the losing side of. Well, I had the privilege of arguing Jack's case at the Supreme Court, and I had the extreme privilege of arguing Baronelle's case in the Washington Supreme Court. And the first thing I would say is that Jack's case uh, at the Supreme Court, the holding was based on the First Amendment free exercise of religion clause. It was based on religious hostility. And the court said that it's wrong for the government to express hostility towards people of faith. It also said it's wrong for the government to essentially compare those who believe marriage is between a man and a woman to those who, for example, might engage in racial bigotry. The principle in Masterpiece establishes that there are good faith differences of opinion on marriage. And the Fulton decision, which came out this term as well, again, reiterates that principle that involved religious adoption agencies who have convictions about marriage. 
So I think those principles are still in place, but what the court's decision did not do in Masterpiece is decide anything outside of that area. It didn't rule on Jack's free speech claim. And the heart of Jack's case and the heart of Baronell's case is also this idea that you would have to create artistic expression, that you would have to express messages or participate in ceremonies that are celebrating messages that violate your core convictions. And that principle is one that we still need to have the court affirm. That principle is critical, not just for those who believe in marriage between a man and a woman. It transcends the marriage issue. As, as you may know, you know, Jack Phillips is on his third case. I think you referred to that. And that case is involving gender identity and whether you have to express messages um, about the nature of what it means to be a man or a woman. So these are critical issues that really do transcend marriage. And the court's decision in Masterpiece and even in Fulton has left the door open for progressives to essentially use the justice system as an arm of cancel culture. So then what's next? What needs to happen in order uh, in order for there to be, you know, clear-cut boundaries and protection of religious freedom for individuals like Baronell and Jack Phillips? There are a number of cases that are involving creative professionals in the lower courts that are working their way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court needs to hear and affirm these critical rights on behalf of all Americans. I mean, just to put it bluntly, the same freedom that allows uh, a photographer or a website designer or a floral artist to decline an event that promotes a view of marriage that violates their convictions promotes the person or, or allows the same freedom for the person with the opposite view. So think of, um, you know, think about it in the, in the life context, for example. Uh, should a pro-abortion photographer have to go take on the project to promote, uh, you know, the March for Life or vice versa? Um, so we need to be able to protect the right to disagree because that's how we have a pluralistic and a free nation. And is there, you know, any path forward for Baronell's case here? No, there's not, mm. to be candid. Wow. Um, I mean, Baronell has blazed a trail. She stood with courage to the bitter end. And it's a grave injustice that the court didn't correct that um, in a meaningful way for her. But I think the best way to honor what she has done is for others to speak the truth about how important it is to have freedom of expression, about how important it is to have a truly tolerant society. And that means one that goes both ways on these critical issues. And as I said, I'm hopeful that the court will, again, affirm this principle in a future case. And that would help Baronel. So, um, you know, it's in one sense, her case is coming to an end, but that doesn't mean the issue is resolved. What it means is that we continue to push forward to ensure First Amendment rights apply to those who have orthodox beliefs on human sexuality, which is th that those are the ones that are being crushed right now. Baronel, there's obviously so much media coverage of your case and your story right now. What is it that you really want the public to know about you and and your journey and uh, and and your uh, your choice that you made to, like you said, kind of draw the line in the sand here. Well, I just want to thank everybody for their prayers and their concerns. And uh, 
you know, we have every right constitutionally to stand up and to have our faith and to live consistent with our, our beliefs. And I just don't want people to think that, you know, oh, it's just a little flower shop, too bad, so sad. Because if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. And we have to stand strong. We have to have a line that we will not cross. Mm. Kristen Baranel, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you all joining us today. Thank you so much. Now stay tuned for our conversation with heritage education expert, Lindsay Burke, as we discuss the National Education Association's effort to promote critical race theory in schools across America. But first, quick question for you all. Do you need a job? If yes, then you need to sign up for the Heritage Foundation Job Bank. The Heritage Job Bank connects conservatives of all career levels to jobs with conservative employers all over the country, and it's free. If you sign up, the Job Bank will send you new job openings every week and invite you to their virtual job fairs and career seminars. The Job Bank team also offers one-on-one career consultation. Signing up is super easy. Just go to heritage.org slash job bank and click on register today. Education and critical race theory is proving to be one of the most controversial issues of the year. The National Education Association is the nation's largest teachers union, and one of the top priorities on their list is critical race theory. They want all schools all over the country to institute critical race theory teaching, and they are researching those who are opposed to this agenda. Just last week, the National Education Association's announced that they were going to research the Heritage Foundation's opposition to critical race theory. Here to help us break down why a teacher's union is taking aim at a think tank's research on the negative effects of critical race theory is our friend and the director of Heritage Center for Education Policy, Lindsay Burke. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So, Lindsay, let's start by just defining critical race theory. I know, you know, some of our audience may be in the weeds of this and know, but it is still a relatively new uh, concept and ideology. So uh, just give us kind of a big picture. What exactly is critical race theory and what does this look like uh, as far as like a school curriculum agenda item? Sure. Well, I think that we can go directly to two of the architects of critical race theory, and look at their definition. This comes from a book called Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado. And in it, he says, unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. So this is directly from the mouths of the original uh, folks working on critical race theory. And look, I mean, I think the way that that we can really break it down is when you look at how it is put into practice in schools and corporations, even in the military, it is this idea that you are part of one of two groups. You are either an oppressor or a victim. And I think at the end of the day, that is exactly what CRT does. It really categorizes people, unfortunately, based on skin color, and other immutable characteristics. And I think Chris Rufo really put it accurately recently when he said that it pits Americans against Americans. 
Hmm, wow. wow. So it really does kind of uh, make everything ab- about race, all of the challenges right. that we face. It all makes it, okay, it comes down this baseline of, of being about the color of your skin. Yeah. And I mean, imagine what that says, particularly to a young child, right? Because we know that this is making its way down into the K-12 education space in a pretty significant way for a young child to be told that there is nothing that they can do to overcome obstacles that they might face in society or the opposite, right? That because of their skin color, they're an oppressor. It's really just a terrible message to send to anyone, let alone young children. Well, last week, the National Education Association announced that they were going to, quote unquote, research the Heritage Foundation for its extensive work on critical race theory. Heritage has released numerous articles and paper on critical race theory and why, you know, like you just mentioned, it it divides us more than it unites us. So why why is the nation's largest teacher union like why is this their fight and why are they picking the Heritage Foundation to fight against? Right. So uh, we can be cynical for a second, right? I mean, they, the NEA, the teachers union, special interest groups, it's not just the NEA, right? It's the NEA and the AFT, the American Federation for Teachers. They had a terrible year last year, right? In 2020 during COVID, they really were at the front lines of keeping the school door closed for millions of children across the country. Uh, They are, I think, largely to blame for schools remaining closed throughout not only late 2020, but almost the entirety of the spring of 2021 as well. I mean, this has had profound negative uh, consequences for not only children, but their families as well. And so now we see uh, in the wake of all the damage done last year that they're now, I think, trying to shift everyone's attention to this this newest fight and in, in engaging uh, in this particular issue And it's quite rich, no pun intended, to see the language uh, of this resolution that talks about well-funded organizations, right? It says well-funded organizations such as Heritage in their resolution when they talk about pushing back against those who have concerns, correctly placed concerns about critical race theory. If we want to talk about well-funded organizations, the NEA is at the top of the list. Their revenue for the 2018-2019 fiscal year exceeded $427 million. Wow. And if you combine the NEA's revenue with the revenue the American Federation of Teachers brought in, that's over $550 million every year. They have 4.5 million uh, members in their unions combined. So they are <laughs> the well-funded <laughs> organizations in this fight. Wow. So what do you think this this really says about the state of public education right now that, you know, critical race theory is a top priority and investigating any opposition to critical race theory is such a top priority for you know one of these leading teachers unions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think first and foremost, it shows just how much these special interest groups are really disconnected from just mainstream opinions on the role of schools and society. And this isn't new. I mean, this is taking it to a a level that we haven't seen before, quite frankly. But the special interest groups, these teachers unions, have been focused on political fads for a long time. Every year when they hold their uh, annual conventions that they hold, they pass resolutions and business items uh, that are are pretty uh, far left. They always seem to point in one direction politically. Uh, We can look throughout the years at various resolutions 
2019, the NEA had a, re a resolution stating that the union, quote, stands on the fundamental right to abortion under Roe v. Wade. Not sure what that has to do with the education of children. Uh, the same year, in 2019, they adopted a, a resolution, an official stance on white fragility to incorporate that idea into the union's trainings and into its literature. And then you can look earlier as well. You know, resolutions in the early 2000s, they called for an exit strategy from the Iraq War. Still, large question about what in the world that has to do with education. <laughs> they, you know, call for amnesty, for illegal immigrants, single-payer health care. The list goes on and on. Um, I, I think one of the most uh, clarifying remarks that ever came out of an NEA convention was when the general counsel of the union, he gave a farewell address at the 2009 convention. And this got a lot of airplay at the time, but I think people may have forgotten it. But his name's Bob Shannon. And he said, quote, it is not because we care about children and it is not because we have a vision of a great public school for every child. The NEA and its affiliates are effective advocates because we have power. And so points for honesty, right, I guess, in that statement. But I think it really does show where the union's priorities are. And so it is a big fight to limit union power moving forward. And then at the same time to really reject what we're seeing, which is this diffusion of critical race theory in the K-12 system. So what are teachers to do? I mean, it sounds easy that, OK, they can just quit the union and stop giving them money. But unfortunately, the way that the education system is set up, a lot of teachers depend on the unions for insurance and for representations in their districts. Yeah. Well, and thanks to you know the Supreme Court and the Janus decision, teachers now have the option. It's very clear. Not only do they not have to join a union, but the unions can no longer take what were called agency fees, which were basically even if you chose not to join the union before that decision came down, the unions could still take a portion of your paycheck. And, uh, you know, which uh, was quite frustrating for a lot of teachers. And so thankfully, that's no longer the case. So teachers should be aware that they do not have to join a union and that there are alternatives out there. There are non-union professional associations like the American Board. It used to be known as the American Board for the Certification of Teacher Excellence, Excellence, which does provide those those types of benefits that you mentioned, along with things like alternative teacher certification. And so teachers should be aware of that fact. And then at the same time, states really need to do more to make sure that uh, aspiring teachers don't have to go through these university-based colleges of education in order to become a teacher, because these colleges of education really are just uh, steeped in critical theory. I mean, this is a big part of what you learn now. When you go through a college of education, it, it is uh, nothing but frameworks that are really rooted in, in critical race theory. And so states should provide multiple pathways to the classroom. We know empirically and there is no relationship between teacher certification and teacher quality, a teacher's ability to impact student achievement. So states should remove those barriers to entry and allow individuals with content matter expertise to enter the classroom and to do so without having to go through these schools of education. Well, and Lindsay, I think the one good point to this is that we're seeing parents kind of stepping up in a way that they haven't stepped up in a long time, pushing against this. So what are you seeing both within kind of the grassroots 
parents stepping up and then also on a statewide legislation front fighting back against CRT in schools? Yeah, I mean, that really has been heartening over, you know, really since COVID began to see, we all know parents are motivated and involved and they care more than anyone else about the well-being of their children. But it was really heartening to see that play out. I I think to your point, it was one of the silver linings to, to the COVID pandemic was to see, you know, parents became incredibly involved advocates for having schools reopen. They were going to those school board meetings, really making their voices heard. In addition to doing things like forming pandemic pods when their child's public school didn't reopen. And then we saw this momentum, this parent involvement really continue when families were at the kitchen table with their children. They had a window into what their public schools were teaching because they were in the virtual classroom with their child. And so when they see critical race theory making its way into the K-12 classroom, they have really continued to be vocal uh, and to show up at those school board meetings and to push back. So we have seen this over the past few months with hundreds, thousands of parents across the country going to those meetings, really engaging in that sort of quintessential civil society action and telling school boards exactly what they think about the content that's being taught. And so we see it play out in places like Loudoun County in particular over the past uh, couple of weeks, which had just massive turnout. So, you know, families should continue to do that. Uh, They are the best advocates for their children's education. And then state legislators have a role to play as well, making sure that school districts, that public schools cannot compel the speech of teachers or students, that they cannot compel teachers or students to affirm the tenets of CRT, that that's a violation of their First Amendment rights, and that they cannot put critical race theories discrimination into practice in a way that violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And so we're seeing in good state proposals across the country that that's exactly what they would do is they would maintain those good civil rights protections. Mm. Lindsay, thanks so much for breaking that down for us. We really appreciate it. And if you would, could you uh, stay on with us for just a moment for our next segment? Definitely. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. In The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Now it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to... Lindsay Burke. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. no, we're, we're so excited. You work so hard fighting for children across this country, uh, promoting just such important work. I mean, the children are our future. Um, so we really wanted to just take a couple minutes and, and honor you and, and make sure that our listeners kind of know your work and, and know why you're fighting. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It's quite an honor. And it really has been such a privilege. I've been at Heritage now for 13 years. It's been (laughs) such a a privilege to be able to work on what I think is the most important issue uh, in education today. And that is the ability for families to 
make decisions that are in the best interest of their children, to select into schools that reflect their values and hopes and aspirations for their children. And so being able to work in particular on education choice and freedom over the past few years, it's just, it's been such a privilege. I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Have you always had a passion for education or where did that start? Um, I, I think so. I mean, I, uh, to be totally honest, I had always had a passion for working at Heritage. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, it, you know, worked out really well for me because I uh, was, was teaching uh, briefly high school and uh, then a position had opened up at Heritage and Education and Policy all those long 13 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was just really, I think, a, a perfect marriage of being able to, to come to an institution that I, I really revered and, and work on an issue that's so important. Well, Lindsay, before we let you go, we want to give you a quick opportunity to self-promote. Where can people follow you and what are you working on that they should go check out? Great. Well, thank you. Uh, You can follow me at Lindsay M, as in mom, Burke, Lindsay M. Burke on Twitter. And uh, go to heritage.org slash education. You'll find all of our education work uh, in our Center for Education Policy. We also have two other Uh, areas on our website that might be of use. One is we have a curriculum resource initiative. So for parents who are schooling at home or uh, anyone else who's interested in good, solid, free market, conservative uh, content to teach, that's on our curriculum resource initiative. Uh, And then we also have an entire new page, uh, if you Google heritage and critical race theory, with all the resources that you need uh, on critical race theory today. Well, Lindsay, thanks for all that you do. Thanks for joining the show. And we can't wait to have you back again. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. In the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. And we'll see you all next Thursday. Stay cool. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.